0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. This morning, we get to see the climax of the book of Jonah. This book is a book that's all about grace. It's been grace from the start, it's grace in the middle, and it's grace at the end. Uh, The book of Jonah puts us face to face with a grace that chases, with a grace that rescues, and with a grace that transforms. And this morning, as we look at Jonah chapter 3, we get to see what happens when God's grace comes upon the city of Nineveh. God's grace collides with Nineveh, and it turns that town upside down. So I am so excited this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into this. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace is real and that you show us what your grace looks like through this book of Jonah. God, I pray that we would see the grace that you're offering to us, that we would see the grace that is ours in Christ, And this grace would help us to live confidently, that we would trust your mercy, your kindness, your love toward us. Father, you need to know grace to preach grace. So Lord, I pray that your grace would be covering me this morning as I serve the people of Story City. God, I love these people and I pray that they would see your mercy anew this morning and it would invigorate them to live a life that is open, honest, and transparent before you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the most difficult conversations you're having? What are the most difficult conversations you're having? What are those conversations that you're not really looking forward to? And then once they happen, you're like, oh, I hated that. And you're playing it over again in your mind. This is the question that consultant Doug Stone's company asks as they go into businesses. And they go into huge companies. They go into global corporations. They go to small communities. They even do some consulting in family. And they're saying, hey, what are these difficult conversations we're having? Um, And he found over and over again this common theme that we all have with conversations that we all hate to have. They all revolve around this issue of feedback or criticism both taking and giving feedback. And so he, um, Doug Stone identifies two reasons why we don't like it. There's two reasons we don't like giving and taking feedback. The first one has to do with the relational aspect of it. And we, just, we all know that there's certain people in our lives that when they say something to us, we either don't receive it, we just like write it off, or we just, it offends us, it shakes us up, and it's because of who's giving it to us. So let's say, for example, you're unemployed and you live with your mom. If your mom says like, hey, you need to update your resume, you're going to be like, mom, I know, OK? I know, thanks, get off my back. But if you go out to coffee with this young entrepreneurial startup, an uh, entrepreneur who's running a startup that you really respect, and they say, hey, you need to update your resume, you're going to be like, yeah, that's, oh, thank you, that's such a good idea. I've been thinking that for a while, but thank you, thank you. <laughs> See, the relational aspect, it matters in how we take and receive feedback. Uh, the other thing that Stone says that why we don't receive feedback is because of our identity. See, we all have this desire to be affirmed from, with, from outside. We want to know that we're loved and accepted. And so when someone says something to you that's uh, constructive, a way you're not measuring up, it can, it can like, just make our identity spin out of control. So let's say, for example, you and I are driving down the freeway. I am a notoriously terrible driver. And so you're sitting beside me. I'm driving, and you're like, hey, hey Craig, could you slow down a little bit? Now, now, from your perspective, you're just offering feedback. You're saying like, hey, you're going too fast. Need to slow down. Right? Nothing about my identity there. But from my perspective, what I hear is, you're a dangerous person. But Don't you care about my safety? Don't you care about the safety of the people around you? Where are you from? Where'd you learn how to drive? New Hampshire? Do they just hand out driver's license in New Hampshire? <laughs> And then all of a sudden, my identity is called into question, and I'm just spinning out of control. What, who am I? What, am I a bad driver? Am I a bad person? Do I not care about things? <laughs> so you see, we, we need those two things to be confident, the relational aspect and the identity aspect, because when we receive feedback, those two things, if we're not sure about it, it's going to send us spiraling out of control. So when we get to Jonah chapter three, Jonah shows up into Nineveh with some pretty constructive feedback. What's the message he gives the Ninevites? 40 days, and God's going to overturn this city. And when we hear that, the Ninevites, I'm sure, they're, both of their relational, uh, their feedback radar just goes off like crazy. Who's this guy to say that? Why is he saying that? It doesn't, you know, he, we shouldn't listen to him. He, just was, he was in a fish. Look at him. He smells terrible. His skin is burned. Let's not listen to this guy. Or they, their identity. Oh, my goodness. Like, why, why is this happening to us? Is it because we're terrible people? Like, does God hate us? Oh, my goodness. And they can go down these downward spirals. But that's not what happens in Genesis chapter or Genesis. It's not what happens in Genesis three. It's also not what happens in Jonah chapter three. In Jonah chapter three, what happens is the Ninevites see the grace of God. They see it so powerfully in Jonah's life. Jonah became an object lesson of God's grace, and so they saw God's grace in Jonah's life, and then they heard God's grace in Jonah's message. See, this, this passage teaches us how to repent. And it says that repentance, walking in a way that is walking with God, is not something we do to earn favor from God. No. We walk with God as a response to the grace we see, to the grace that's been given to us. And so that's what we're going to look at today in Jonah chapter 3. We're going to first look at this grace. How does God's grace show up toward Nineveh? Once we see it, once we see that it's a grace that chases It's a grace that rescues and it's a grace that transforms. Once we see that grace, we're going to be able to respond and repent in a gospel-centered grace way. It's going to completely transform. So repentance will go from being this doomy, gloomy, let's feel bad about ourselves all the time. But no, we can see this grace and we can respond to it. So that's where we're going today. First, we're going to look at the grace that chases. The grace that chases. See, if if you think for a second in your life that God's grace kind of comes to you like, like, an, like you find something at a yard sale that an old person didn't mean to put out at the yard sale, like get in the car, this is awesome, they don't know they're selling this, we're going. Like if you think about God's grace like that, you're not going to trust it. You're not going to be confident in it. If you think he accidentally gave it to you, your confidence is going to be really low. Um, the other day, uh, we lost a pair of Jets shoes. I really say he lost it. I mean, I know he's 17 months old, but he should be a little more responsible with this stuff. <laughs> and um, so we scoured everywhere. We, looked, we turned the colony theater upside down. We turned our house upside down, car, every, couldn't find it. So we have to go to Target. Go to Target, buy a pair of shoes. They're 20 bucks. And it's like, ugh. And so I'm at the self-checkout station, and I ring it up, and it rings up for $5. Yes. And I'm, yes. And I'm like, <laughs> All right, thank you. Amy, get the car going. (laughs) And I'm even a little bit afraid to tell you guys that because there's a part of me that feels like maybe a representative from Target is here, and they're going to know that I didn't pay what I should have for these shoes, and they're going to come get me. If you think of God's grace like that, you're going to be exhausted. You're always going to be between two extremes in your life, between this extreme of like, I'm doing well. This is awesome. Like, I'm full of pride. I'm better than these people. Why can't they get it together? Or the other thing of despair. You're always going to be bouncing forth in that. So you need to see this grace. Jonah 3 gives us a front row seat to this grace. And here's where it first shows up. We see God's motivation in sending Jonah to Nineveh. Why would God send Jonah to these people? What, look at verse uh, 1. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, which is amazing grace, by the way. He could have just said, like, Jonah, you're done. You didn't disobey. New prophet. But no, he's working on Jonah, even in this. He's giving Jonah grace. Go to the great city of Nineveh uh, and proclaim the message that I give to it. And then verse 3, now Nineveh was a very large city. The Hebrew literally says, now Nineveh was a city important to God. Why was Nineveh so important to God? Was it because these people were crying out to God? They were seeking God? They were like really super righteous? No. We actually know from archaeological uh, documents the opposite was true. The people of Nineveh were like the worst people you could ever imagine. Like everything bad you've seen on Game of Thrones, those were the people of Nineveh. (laughs) We know from history that they used to, when they would invade a city, they would uh, do live dismemberments. So they would chop off your arm and then they'd make you carry your arm around in a parade. Uh, They also would bring out entire families and decapitate members of the family and make you carry around your loved one's head. And when they'd attack a city, they would skin people and then wallpaper the whole town with their skin as like their tag. Nineveh was here. These are the people that God says, these are important to me. I love these people. God's grace chases after us. It goes to people at their worst. And if there's hope for the Ninevites, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. This this, Jonah chapter three is aimed at just blowing up any idea you have that church is about good people, that we're good people. We're here celebrating our goodness. We're surrounded by other good people. Isn't this so great? Look at how good we are. No, 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 no. The gospel goes after people who are undeserving. We're watching God's grace chase undeserving people. And you know what? Jonah really had a problem with this. He's like, they don't deserve God's grace. I don't want them to have your grace. And we know he thought that because in Jonah 4, 2, he says this to God. I know, I knew you were going to forgive them, God. That's why I ran away in the first place. I don't want these people to experience your grace. He knew that God was sending him to Nineveh, not to crush them, but to show God his character. Hey, I'm a loving, compassionate, gracious God. I want to dump my grace on you, undeserving people. Why? Because it's who I am. It's what I love to do. And so by doing this, Jonah's like, I'm shutting this down, guys. Like, I don't want these people to experience grace. I don't want them to have the same status with God that I have. I'm a child of God. I've been forgiven. My sins are forgiven. I'm walking with God. I don't want that for them. They don't deserve that. And so he tries to shut it down. And then here's where the grace that chases gets even more amazing. So God sent Jonah on a rescue mission of grace and says, hey, go rescue the Ninevites. Jonah says, nope, I'm not doing that. And he runs away. And we know the story of Jonah from Matt's preaching. So there's like this downward spiral. He, he goes down to Joppa. And then from Joppa, he goes down into a boat. And then he goes down into the sea. And then he goes down into the fish that takes him all the way down. And then when he's down, God picks him up and saves him, and then spits him out onto the Nineveh shore to go preach the gospel to them. He made Jonah an actual, like, vivid living picture of the gospel. This is what mercy looks like. And so now the Ninevites, he shows up, and they see him. Like, he would have... Anybody ever been to a fisherman's wharf? He would have smelled like a fisherman's wharf cranked up to 11. He would have smelled terrible. And he was in a fish's stomach, like his skin would have been burned. His hair would have been bleached. So this, this guy, like, oh, well, we see God's grace in his life. That's the same grace that's coming after us. Wow. So th- this is what the Old Testament scholar James Smith says about this. Here is the supreme irony of the book of Jonah. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh doomed. So he fled to Tarshish, and in doing so, he set into motion a chain of circumstances which actually gave his message credibility. And see, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus uh, offers some commentary on Jonah chapter three in Luke eleven. Jesus says this about Jonah three. Uh, this is Luke eleven thirty. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. So, uh, so the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. So what's, he, what's Jesus saying here? So um, Jonah, would, if he had just obeyed God and just gone to Nineveh, they may not have repented. They may have been like, whatever, dude, like, we don't care. But because he tried to shut it down, and he ran away, and then he goes on his adventure, and he shows up in the state he's in, they're like, whoa, look at God's grace. Look at his chasing grace. This guy didn't even want to be here, but God wanted him here so badly, he upset the laws of nature to get him here. That's amazing love. That's incredible grace. He was a sign. So Jonah himself became a sign validating the message he tried to shut down. That's, That's chasing grace, but it's also unstoppable grace. You cannot stop God's mercy and God's grace in your life. See, if you think of God's grace as like not really powerful, if you think of it kind of like a dripping faucet, like, okay, we got to get it. We got to get it. We don't know the next time it's going to come. You're not really going to trust God's grace. And you're going to always constantly be fighting to prove, fighting to prove you're worth it, fighting to prove you're righteous, you're good. But if you see the amazing grace that God, it's not a dripping faucet. He just dumped a bucket of grace on these people. You're going to be confident. I, I didn't initiate this. God came to me in mercy. I don't have to earn my way here. He came after me. This is amazing grace. And now that you see that grace, when you look at it, when you stare at it, that actually transforms us. So when you first see the grace that chases you, you now are able to look at the grace that transforms you. You see, uh, the people of Nineveh, Completely were turned upside down by this message. See, we like to think of it. We look at it. We're like, oh, maybe they were just like scared of God's wrath, and so they didn't want to burn. Like you know, the old like street preachers. They say, turn or burn. Maybe that's what's happening here. No, we really know that they had an encounter with grace. How do we know that? Well, if you look at um, that's Luke. That was what? If you look at uh, Jonah, chapter three, starting in verse uh, three again. Uh, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. We know that no city in the ancient Near East, this culture, this is in modern-day Iraq, uh, no city was big enough that it would actually take someone three days to walk into it. Um, What most commentators actually believe this text means is that God is saying, hey, it's going to take you three days to go in and out of every neighborhood. I want you to make sure this message of grace is loud and clear. I want everybody to hear it. So go into every neighborhood, every town square and proclaim this grace. So Jonah uh, doesn't do that. If you look at the text, he only goes one day, but it doesn't matter that one day was enough. So God's grace can't even be stopped by half-hearted obedience. And you see, the message that Jonah gives to the people of Nineveh, it's really punny. You see, um, he says, hey, 40 more days and Nineveh will be turned. And what Jonah is hoping is that turned means overturned. But you see, this word is used throughout the Hebrew Bible in a couple different ways. Yeah, it does mean overturned. In Genesis 19, uh, we see a record of God overturning a city. So imagine like an egg and you flip it before it's ready. It's just like <laughs> messy. But we see in Psalm 66, this, uh, God uses the same word to talk about how he takes the dry land and he turns it into a flowing river. He, it, it, it's a double entendre. Like Jonah's like, oh, fine, I'll give your grace, but I'm gonna have one foot in my way. I'm gonna have one foot in like, hey, it's gonna mess you up. But it doesn't matter. God's grace is so unstoppable, and they saw it in his life, they heard it in his message. And so they respond with gospel-centered repentance. See, uh, if you ever want to be a leader at Story City, one of the things we do is we give you this document called All of Life is Repentance. And I like handing it out to people. Uh, In the old days, we used to hand it out to people. I like handing it to them because I can see their reaction when they read it. When they see that title, they're just like, what? Like what do I have to do in my life now? That does not sound like fun or good news. Why in the world do I have to do that? That's because the way we think of repentance, we think of it um, in a a religious way. I messed up my relationship with you, therefore I need to do all these things to make it right. I need to feel terrible. I need to uh, wallow in that guilt for a while. I need to let you see that guilt. Um, But the gospel, gospel gospel-centered, grace-centered repentance is totally different. And the text lets us see that by comparing two characters, Jonah and the king of Nineveh. Now think about this for a second. Jonah was a prophet, right? Kind of a little late in the game to share that with you, but just think about it for a second. (laughs) Jonah was a prophet, and uh, Israel had a ton of prophets. Jonah is just one in a series of 12 prophets. There's four other major prophets. And so Israel, God's people had all these prophets speaking to them, calling them to repent. And they wouldn't. Now God says, hey, come to these totally irreligious people. And on day one, they completely turn around. They completely see God's grace. i are like, we want that. That's amazing. They didn't wait till day 39. That's how you know it's, it's legitimate. Like if, if they were just really concerned about the consequences that God was, God was saying, like, hey, you need to turn. Uh, give it a couple weeks." we'll wait here. But no, right away, these people cannot turn fast enough because it's not because they're afraid of consequences. It's because they love that grace and they want to see it. And so as we compare Jonah, this religious person, to these irreligious people, we get to see what gospel-centered repentance looks like. So think about Jonah chapter one. Think back there. When the word of the Lord first comes to Jonah, how does he react? He gets up he runs the other way. Now, when the word of the Lord comes to the king of Nineveh, what does he do? He gets up and he's broken, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he just cries out. He sees the horror of his ways and he sees not that like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to pay. There's this penalty coming for these ways, but he sees this gracious God, who God is, and he sees what he's done in light of that grace. Oh my goodness, I have acted violently toward people. This breaks his heart. Um, Moreover, we see when we compare their concerns, Jonah's concerns, and the concerns of the king of Nineveh. When Jonah runs, he's not concerned about anybody but himself. Think about it. He gets on a boat with all these sailors, and uh, a storm comes because of him. It's his fault that there's a crazy storm. And as they're rowing, trying to save their lives, he's like, "Uh, Jonah out. I'm going to go take a nap. And he goes down into the bottom of the boat. Well, think about the king and his concerns. When the king hears this message, he shuts everything down. He's like, hey, even the animals, don't let the animals eat. And to us, that sounds weird. Like, why would he do that? And it's supposed to be kind of funny. The text is like, you're supposed to see this guy who's like, what? Oh my gosh, nobody eat, not even the animals. But really what he's saying, his heart behind that is like, hey, we're willing to let even our economy suffer until we get right with God. That's something that a religious repentance can't offer you. Religious repentance is just concerned about consequences. It's just tr- concerned about getting things from God. But when you've encountered grace, you see that grace is so powerful, it frees you. It frees you from like, I don't care how I look. I don't care what's going on. I just want to receive this grace. I don't want to offend God. And then we see some injustice here, actually. So the king, we, we talked about earlier how Nineveh, where they were just a people of violence. Well, that word violence, when it's used throughout the Old Testament, It doesn't mean violence, like how we think of it, like, you know, you stab a stranger, but it means social injustice, not treating people the way they deserve to be treated. And the king repents of that. Jonah, however, though, he, he creates injustice. See, God says, hey, go give grace to the Ninevites. Go give this to them. They'll turn and they'll repent. He's like, no, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. God said they did. God said he's offering this to them, but no, no, I don't think they need it. I'm out. So Jonah's self-righteous repentance creates more sin, but gospel repentance frees people to be honest about their failures. This is the grace. This is the grace that chases. This is the grace that transforms. Biblical transformation has nothing to do with you trying hard for Jesus. Biblical transformation comes when you see what God has done for you in the gospel and you live a life of gratitude after. Not earning, but you've received and now you're grateful. But maybe you're thinking about this and you're like, wait a second. What if, what if I was like Nineveh's neighbor? Like, you know, I lived like a couple cities down and they came into my town and they killed my dad. I mean, I'm glad they're right with God, but where's the justice there? Like, my dad's dead, and they just get to go off the hook. Why didn't God destroy them? Doesn't he care about justice? I mean, and, and this is how, like, we, we as late modern people really struggle with the justice of God. Um, but we don't struggle with it in seeing it in other people's lives. Think about it like this. So say if you, if I drove into your mailbox... And we're standing in front of a judge. And I say, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to run into their mailbox. And the judge says, it's okay. I forgive you. Cool. We're cool here. We're fine. And nobody pays for your mailbox. You have to pay for your mailbox. You're going to feel that. You're gonna, justice will cry out from your bones. You're gonna be like, what? Who's going to pay for my mailbox? And that's what Nineveh's neighbors must have been wondering. That's what Jonah's wondering. Where's the justice here? Why doesn't God destroy Nineveh? Well, our answer comes, actually, when we look back to what Jesus said in Luke 11. In Luke 11, Jesus says this. Let me read it again to remind you what he said. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be assigned to this generation. And then down to verse 32. Something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is kind of like Rogue One. Rogue One's a great movie. Um, actually, I'm only saying that, so let me... I didn't like Rogue One. Um, this, is, this is a really side tangent, but I told someone I thought Rogue One was a stupid movie, and they were like, I worked on it. I was like... I hate living in L.A. Like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? And they were in the last service, so that was for them. Um, but Rogue One is a fine movie, okay? But if all you have is Rogue One you know what you don't have? You don't have balance to the force. You don't have half the story. You don't know much of the answers. You get to see how things work. It gets to fill in holes. That's cool. But you don't know the whole story. And that's what Jonah is. Jonah's great. We get to see God's grace in action, in both in Jonah's life and then in Nineveh's life. But it leaves a big question mark at the end. But Jesus answers that question when he says someone greater than Jonah is here. So remember we said that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. So he went to run away. He, he was trying to shut down God's mercy of ministry, a mercy of grace, ministry of grace. He'll get there. Trying to shut down God's ministry of grace. And in trying to shut it down, he actually ended up giving credibility to that message. So Jesus is like Jonah and greater than Jonah in that he, the same exact thing happened to him. Jesus shows up on a rescue mission, a rescue mission being sent by God and coming of his own accord. And he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Okay. People didn't like that. The religious leaders of his day hated that. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming that empty religion wasn't working out. And he's saying, hey, trust me for forgiveness of sins. They wanted to shut down his ministry of grace. So what do they do? They kill him. And in doing so, they set off a chain of events that offers us salvation and answers this question for us. Why was was God able to not destroy Nineveh? Because he stepped in the place of the Ninevites. He himself was destroyed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our sin is costly. It's serious. And God is a just God. But he paid the penalty for that sin. He stepped in the place. His justice rings out. And now, when you see that, when you see God's grace, when you see His justice, and when you trust it and when you love it, you're forgiven. That's how Jesus is the greater and better Jonah. Jonah couldn't do that. Jonah didn't want to do that. Jesus did it willingly. He came and he died. So Doug Stone, the consultant we, we talked with earlier in this sermon, uh, he said that actually one of the reasons people don't listen to his consultations that, about feedback, that we don't like giving and taking feedback, um, is because some people think they're actually pretty good at feedback, and they have this handy-dandy tool that they use to, to take and give feedback. It's called the compliment sandwich. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what a compliment sandwich is, it's this— I give you a compliment, say something really nice about you. Then I give you the feedback, what I really wanted to say. And then I end it again with some more compliments. So it goes compliment, feedback, compliment. Compliment sandwich. Well, Stone points out that the problem with a compliment sandwich is that when we eat sandwiches in real life, we don't call them a bread, ham, bread sandwich. We call it a ham sandwich. We're very good at just like, okay, you're giving me a compliment. I know that's coming. Now now give me the real news. Your relationship with God is not a compliment sandwich. He offers you something better than a compliment sandwich. His grace sees you as you are. God saw the city of Nineveh as it was. Like, they were the bad guys on Game of Thrones, like we, we can read this and hear this today and not be as impacted by it because we're distanced by time, but this is like God calling someone to go to Boko Haram, to go to ISIS, the KKK, just like the most evil people you can think of, go and give them my message of grace. Ah, I don't want to, no. And in doing so, we get and we see God's grace. Like this whole thing, this whole gospel is all about grace. And even though this grace, it doesn't in any way take away from God's justice. God still is just, and he still takes sin seriously. And when we see that whole picture, when we see God's grace, when we see God's justice, we're transformed. Religion goes from being about trying for God to being like, hey, look what God's given me. Look, this was costly to him. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was crying sweats of blood, and he's saying, God, if there's any other way please, I don't want to do this. If God is just love and nice and just wants to forgive you and doesn't do anything about justice, Jesus's interaction here makes no sense. Like, why, Jesus? Like, yeah, just keep going on loving people. No, but our brokenness is costly. And so this is a grace, though, that frees you to be honest about your failure because it didn't come after your best self. Jesus didn't die for you on your good days. Jesus didn't say, hey, I want that one. Look at how they're acting. Look at how they're living. Oh, my goodness, we need that. No, he came after you in your brokenness. That's a grace that chases. It's a grace that rescues. And it's a grace that transforms. This Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the door, and the world was never the same. Why did the Protestant Reformation make such a big deal? The Protestant Reformation was such a big deal because nobody knew if they could be right with God. They had to try. They had to work. They had to buy indulgences. They had to do all these things to like, maybe God will love me. Maybe he'll be gracious. But if we see this grace, the ever chasing God who catches us, who just showers us with grace, and we trust that grace, and we're confident, our world will be turned upside down. You know why? Because you can know you can know that God loves you. How? Look to the cross. He loved, Nineveh was a great city to God. He, he loved it. He valued it. And he also came and died. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the grace of the, the book of Jonah, how undeserving people can be welcomed into your family how we can be honest about our failures because you, uh, you see us at our worst and you love us. That's when you shower your love, compassion, and grace on us. So Lord, I pray that your gospel would set us free today, free to love you, free to walk with you, and free to do that in a way that shows the city of Burbank the hope of Jesus Christ. That's all these things in his name, amen.